Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Stanley Andrus will join us to discuss from prison cells to PhD. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, a career in science is challenging enough, but making it all the way from prison make it even tougher. Joining us today to discuss his story is Dr. Stanley Andrus. Dr. Andrus is an endocrinologist scientist and assistant professor at Howard University College of Medicine, where he researches type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. Dr. Andrus holds a visiting professorship at Georgetown University Medical Center and held an adjunct professorship at Johns Hopkins Medicine after completing his postdoctoral training. He serves as the executive director and founder of From Prison Cells to PhD. He is a board member of the formerly incarcerated college graduate networks and past president of the Johns Hopkins Postdoctoral Association. He has penned the new book, From Prison Cells to PhD, It Is Never Too Late to Do Good. Dr. Andrus, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, captivating book, your journey to scientists at Howard University Medical School. I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. Yeah, having gone from prison and being where I am now as an endocrinologist scientist and professor at one of the top HBCUs, I could very easily just move in that direction, but I'm compelled to give back. So I am a formerly incarcerated individual with three felony convictions. I was sentenced to 10 years in prison as a prior and persistent career criminal. I had a prosecutor in my early 20s pushing for 20 years to life in prison because she felt that I had no hope for changing the decisions that I had been making up until that time. Um, And as you mentioned in the intro, I'm now Dr. Stan Andres, endocrinologist, scientist, professor, Howard, Johns Hopkins, Georgetown. I'm also a visiting professor at Imperial College London, which is an Ivy League caliber school in the UK. So I clearly didn't live up to the expectations of that prosecutor those many years ago. And having navigated the different challenges, roadblocks and obstacles that I was able to navigate, I just couldn't not be doing the work to help others navigate those challenges and roadblocks and hurdles. And so both with the nonprofit and the book, the idea was that I couldn't just continue on with life without helping others. So I knew I wanted to help others as I was on the journey of getting out of prison and actively jumping over hurdles and navigating through these challenges. But in the earlier days of being released from prison, I didn't tell anyone that I had just come from prison. I was kind of scared that it would negatively impact my trajectory. But I had always been going to small groups and sharing my story and how I've changed. When I was incarcerated, I can recall, and prison is this very dehumanizing experience, you know, almost designed to break people down. You know, we call it the Department of Corrections, but it's there's really no corrective or rehabilitative 
aspects for the most part. Things are starting to change, but definitely for the most part, it's the punishment system and very dehumanizing. And I can recall when I was in this kind of epiphany phase of change and I was telling one of the people who's the co-founder of the organization that I'm going to get out and I'm going to be a doctor. And, you know, he's just looking at me like, do you know where we are? What are you talking about? So early on, people in prison are told that they can't do this. They can't accomplish that. They are worthless. They are hopeless. This is all that you can do. Get out and work with your hands. And we saw that education has the power to transform lives, and we wanted to provide that to others. And we knew that to really do that, we needed to provide people resources, support, and mentoring. And that's what the organization does. So we started doing that, and we knew that we couldn't just do programming. We couldn't just teach people how to jump over the hurdles and get around the obstacles. We had to get rid of those hurdles and obstacles. And to do that, we knew we had to be working at a policy systemic level So we started with the policy branch of the organization. And one of the things that we big challenges was to ban the box or remove the criminal conviction question from job applications and college applications, as well as Pell restoration. And doing that work, I ended up testifying in Maryland Senate and the Washington Post picked up the story. And from there, I had a few publishers reach out. And that's really how the book came into fruition. The organization came into fruition to help, and then the book came into fruition from this need for people to really have that help. So again, I felt compelled that I had to tell that story. And in terms of writing it, I've always been a journaler, so I had it kind of written, but I just took some time away from work to really sit down and write with thoughtfulness. As you point out, there are many obstacles in place for people trying to change after prison. What were the hurdles you yourself encountered? How did you navigate those and your role models in terms of moving from prison cells to PhD? Sure. So one, I've mentioned the dehumanization. I'll share a couple of experiences of some of those obstacles and what helped me get through them. So at my sentencing, I had a prosecutor pushing for 20 years to life. I had an attorney who was trying to push for something different. The prosecutor had to paint this picture of me as this dangerous threat to society that needed to be thrown away. So you can imagine what that does to a person to hear them say that they're essentially this monster. And so I'm taking all that in in my early 20s. My brain's not even fully developed yet. So I'm very much believing all this stuff that's being said. The judge gives out this 10-year sentence. It was kind of this out-of-body experience. I asked the judge, as I like finally came back to, if I could go hug my mother. And the judge denied me the opportunity to hug my mom, who was falling in tears at this time. And I share that often because it was at this moment, although I had been, it was my third felony, you know, separate felony conviction. I had been in and out of courtrooms for some time, but for some reason, I still had a belief in the system that they thought of me as a person, as a human. And it was in that moment that I started to realize that the system doesn't see me as a human. I'm not, they don't see me as deserving the respect and civility that you give to a human to give my mom a 30 second quick hug before I started my sentence. And so it was there that it really hit me like, they don't see me as a human. I don't have the respect civility in prison just was a repetitive every minute, hour, day telling you that you are worthless. So one of the biggest obstacles is the psychological challenge of trying to overcome the idea that you are worthless and that you can't bring value into this world. For me, I was fortunate enough to have this mentor step into my life 
that saw a different trajectory, saw me using my talents and potential differently than how I was using them to sell drugs in the streets. He started investing in that potential. That tied with, I ended up losing my father to his battle with type 2 diabetes. And that was over the course of about two years, he had multiple surgeries and hospitalizations. And it was just this emotionally difficult time. And dealing with sickness and death is difficult no matter what the circumstances are. But when you lock somebody in a cage and you have to deal with something like that, it's exponentially more challenging. And one of the ways that I, I usually explain that is we think of the stages of grief. One of those stages being angry. You can't be angry in prison. You can't just start yelling at somebody or just yelling in general. That could literally bring harm your way. So people in prison can't really go through that stage of grief when they're dealing with trauma or whatever it may be. Another stage being sadness and depression. You can't really be sad or depressed. That usually involves crying. That is yet another thing that can bring harm your way and you know make you vulnerable. So I couldn't, you, you can't really go through those stages. And a lot of people, that matriculates into them acting out and being violent towards others and themselves. But for me, I channeled that. I used that just emotional distress and I poured it into learning about diabetes. And this mentor that I had provided me my first, read my first scientific article on diabetes while I was locked in a cage. What it did for me, although my body was physically locked in a prison cell, my mind was freely roaming around the human cell. And in that way, I was free. The other thing that it really did for me was these articles are very difficult to get through. And I didn't have the resources, dictionaries, encyclopedias, internet to really dive through the way someone on the outside would. So it would take me weeks, even months just to get through one article. But that was fine. That offered me even more time to escape prison. So I think that was what helped me get over this psychological challenge of disbelief in myself, this mentor stepping into my life and me finding diabetes research and the thirst for just knowledge. I had no idea that it was going to take me, as I just mentioned before we jumped on the call, I'm in the middle of an experiment with my students in lab right now. I had no idea that learning about diabetes would take me to the path of being an endocrinologist doing diabetes research. I was just enthralled with learning and knowledge. And that helped me get over that psychological hurdle of disbelief in myself. One of the other hurdles that a lot of people know is, is getting a job. And that's why we decided to take that first step of policy change and banning the box. I can recall getting out and applying to a number of jobs and getting rejected from all of them. One of the ones that was really like devastating for me, and I explained this in the book, I was a, a three-sport athlete in high school. I was my basketball coach's, one of his best players. So when I got out, I reached back to him, and he was at a different school. And I told him about everything that was going on. He needed a coach. He loved my tenacity, which I also explained in the book that his coaching style, which was the way we ended up winning a championship, and his style, we weren't bigger or better basketball players. We were more conditioned, and we worked harder. And so he instilled this type of work ethic. And I, you know, was telling him that his work ethic really helped me get through prison. And so I'm telling him all about, I just went to prison. Are you sure I could teach high school kids, minors? And he's, you know, Stan, you were my best player. Like, of course, I, you know, come on in and I'll work it out. I'm really good. With, he was the athletic director as well as the basketball coach. And he's like, I'll work it out with the principal. Everything would be good. I start coaching these kids for a full month. 
And we get to our first game and connect very well with the kids because I, I look relatively young. My medical students now still think I'm their age, but connecting really well, the kids were really loving the work that we were doing. I built this bond with them. On our very first game, I walk into the locker room and I had missed a few calls from my coach and he tells me they fired me. They actually not only fired me, they put a restraining order on me, whereas if I got in certain amount of yards from the kids, I would be arrested and sent back to prison. And that was so devastating. My life was starting to get back together a little bit. I was in school and I was like, I got this job. I hadn't, it was my first job that I got since I've been back and I lost it because of my record. So we want to remove those types of barriers for people. There is this pipeline, as you point out, the school to prison pipeline, which even extends beyond prisons after one gets out. Sure. So I'm originally from the Ferguson, Missouri area, and we know a lot about Ferguson after Mike Brown was killed in the streets and subsequent things that happened, including the Department of Justice's investigation that showed the excessive and over-policing. So I grew up in that, not knowing what excessive or over-policing was. What I can recall was there were always police around. I can recall as early as eight years old running from the cops. For me, I thought that there's more cops around because there's more, quote unquote, I don't really use this word anymore, but this is what I was thinking back then. There's more criminals around. There's more crime happening in this area. So there was already an overlay of people from my area become criminals, right? And then in school, I was as early as elementary school, definitely in middle school and high school, I was just constantly in detention and suspension. Several years in high school, I was almost expelled. And the only reason I wasn't expelled is because I was one of the school's top athletes. And I played football, basketball, and track. And the disciplinary principal was my track coach. So that's the only reason that I didn't actually get expelled. So I had these coaches, as I mentioned, my basketball coach was very influential in like molding who I am. But in terms of there was really no molding of my intellectual potential at that particular time. I basically saw myself as either making it in sports or making it in the streets. That's what people from where I come from, this area that I come from, which was 80, 90 percent black at the time, over policed and excessively policed. All of the social, economic, cultural, societal things told me that I was to be a criminal, that I was to be in the streets hustling. I don't say any of that to say that it wasn't my decisions to do all the things that I did, but there definitely was this overlay of different things going on that had an influence in it. So that resulted in me selling drugs before I was even 13, before I was even a teenager, getting arrested for the first time at 14, moving into the juvenile system continuing to make poor decisions still in my early 20s, facing 20 years to life in prison. After prison, pursuing a career in science, academia is not necessarily known for being the most amenable to change. Sure. So again, to that epiphany moment in prison and this mentor helping out, and coincidentally, as organization that I founded from Prison Cells to PhD, the book and the organization carry the same name was founded very much off of the experience of myself and the other co-founders and how this mentor played such a big role in changing the psychological, my, you know, my view of self and what I can bring to the world. He helped me do that. And that's what we do in our organization. So this mentor pushed for me to start 
continuing or to apply to different schools so I can continue my education upon release. And he eventually helped me with some other support, apply to six different programs. And there's just a number of barriers in that process. You can only receive five pieces of paper in any parcel of mail. So like schools kept sending me their application packet, but they just kept getting rejected. And I was telling them, I'm trying to continue my education. Like, can you just let this come through? And they're like, no, it's against policy. It has to be rejected. It was just challenging just to get information from the schools. It took about six months plus to put together each application. And as soon as I hit the submit button, which I actually didn't hit the submit button, I had to have somebody on the outside helping me. You know, I would handwrite the stuff, send it to somebody, they type it up, they put it in the application and they press the submit button. But almost immediately on each of the applications, I had to mark the box and say that I was had a criminal conviction. And most immediately, it's rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. I was rejected from every single place I applied to, except for St. Louis University, where this mentor was on the admissions committee. So one way that I got over the big hurdle of academics not really understanding change was I had an insider in the process. I'm not sure that if I didn't have him that I would have gotten in. So I got into St. Louis University and I completed my MBA and PhD simultaneously in four years at the top of my class. As I was mentioning earlier, I didn't share anything about my past. I was unsure how this mentor pulled this Harry Houdini stunt to get me in, but I didn't want to mess it up. So I had this like hunger and thirst for change and that leaning on my faith and my wanting to be this different person. I just put all of my energy into really doing the best that I could. And that resulted in me being at the top of my class and and finishing earlier. But then each of my successive steps into the next academic institution really involved a insider person helping me get in. So we learned through my experience and then just through the experience of others, that is a key thing. It's, It's a key thing for even people without convictions. We know that trying to apply cold call to an organization or to a company, most jobs are through networking. So for people who criminal convictions, one of the biggest things they lack is social capital. So I started building my social capital through this mentor. And that's, you know, partly the same thing that the organization helps people do. That was my way to navigate the academic institution was build these connections with people that believe in you. You know, and I always ask him now, he's still a mentor of mine, why he believed in me. And he he just says that he saw my intellect and potential. And that's all that mattered. He was from St. Louis and grew up around different things that maybe some other professors aren't around. So he kind of knew a little bit about that. And possibly that played a role, but he believed in me. And it was that initial step that just continued to build itself in terms of building my social capital. Because after four years of finishing at the top of my class, I now had built a lot of social capital within the academic realm to help me in that next step. Mentor was uh, such a motivating force. Mention who he is. Sure, yeah. I, I mentioned him in my book, and he's actually not too far outside of Chicago. He's now at Northern Illinois University, Dr. Barry Bodie. You were very fortunate to have Dr. Bowden as a mentor, it sounds like, and now it's, you're repaying that by this organization from Prison Cells to PhD. Have you seen the same sort of effects with your organization? Do you see a lot of the things changing that you'd hope to change? 
Most certainly. The organization is from Prison Cells to PhD. Our program is called Prison to Professionals, and we call it P2P. You know, P2P by the numbers, we have had over a thousand currently and formerly incarcerated men and women apply to the program in the past five years of its existence. And we work with about a hundred men and women currently and formerly incarcerated go through the program each year. We have a 95 percent success rate of getting people into higher education and meaningful employment. And the folks in our program maintain our average GPA is around 3.75. So I usually mention that when folks tell me like, wow, like finishing a PhD, MBA at the same time in four years, how did you do that? You're obviously brilliant. But what I found is that if you give people that second chance and you give them that opportunity and you believe in them and you help them understand that they can bring value into the world and to themselves, they don't want to mess that up. And they give 100% the same same way that I did. So my situation, a lot of people want to say that it's unique and I'm this anomaly and this exception, but we repeat it a hundred times a year. <laughs> so that's that's a pretty good end. That's a pretty good end value to all the scientists out there. Like it's it's I'm not this anomaly. You give people support and a second chance and you and you give them the resources and tools, most of the time they already have what they need to be successful in what they are trying to do. They just never really had the access and opportunity and the support to really help them capitalize on that access. There are more organizations popping up like yours. Are you hopeful for the sea change in terms of these type of support structures for individuals? So I am incredibly hopeful. There's a lot of work to do, but but I am incredibly hopeful. A few examples of why I'm hopeful. I went through my education very scared to share my story. We now, as part of the organization, help people understand that their stories and their experiences is actually their power. Their stories have value to, you know, bring value to themselves because it's who they are. Denying who you are is this psychologically, emotionally damaging thing. And so not only is it bad to deny who you are, your story has power to help the next individual. So we've created this space where it's actually now becoming more acceptable for people to share their stories. And what that has done is created this space where employers and schools are becoming more accepting of people who've been to prison. And there has been a lot of work around developing networks of second chance employers and schools, meaning schools that are willing to bring on people with convictions, employers willing to bring on people with convictions. So in that regard, I'm very hopeful. I know we work with a lot of correctional partners and educational partners. To give a few shout outs to who we work with, we're working with Missouri's Department of Corrections, North Carolina Department of Corrections, Maryland's Department of Corrections, California's Department of Corrections. California and North Carolina have the most college education programming inside their walls as more than any other state. Missouri, where I was incarcerated at, didn't have any college programming when I was incarcerated. Now they're partnering with us and others. They're working to get college inside of every single one of their facilities. So seeing things like that, I I am hopeful that both corrections and education systems are starting to understand the value in providing education to people with convictions. And slowly, I know we are doing the work to change the narrative so that society can also see the value in providing those opportunities and access to people with convictions. 
If you have any uh, final words regarding the book and your organization, From Prison Cells to PhD. Sure. Thank you for that question. I do. I haven't really talked about, so the full title of the book is From Prison Cells to PhD, It Is Never Too Late to Do Good. That the subtitle of the book, It's Never Too Late to Do Good, is a phrase that my father used to tell me. So my family, we are Haitian immigrants. And I talk about that in the book, but being Haitian immigrants, my first language that I learned was Creole. English was actually, you know, my second language. And so my family spoke Creole and, and my dad would tell me this phrase, which was, il ne jamais pas trop tard pour faire bien. The literal translation is, it is never too late to do good. The more accurate translation is, it is never too late to reach your full potential and it's never too late to do the right thing. So he would have these conversations as I was diving deeper and deeper into the criminal legal system and selling drugs. And what he was trying to tell me was that I still believe in you. I just need you to believe in you. And he had this deep faith that one day that I would start believing in myself. And unfortunately, I ended up losing him before I had the opportunity to really start understanding that message. But that message is a powerful message to the criminal legal system. Our system in society, if we believed in that message, we wouldn't be sentencing people to 20, 30, 40 life sentences in, in prison because we would believe that it's never too late for them to start doing the right thing and to change. So our system doesn't really believe in this aspect of change and second chances. And the book goes through and explains through my experiences how society could benefit from understanding that it's never too late to do good and that we should be giving people second chances. Well, it really is a fantastic message and a, and a fantastic book. I certainly hope people will go take a look at it. We were talking with Dr. Stanley Andrus, his new book, From Prison Cells to PhD, It Is Never Too Late to Do Good. Dr. Andrus, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>